It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Chris, we are in the wake of a very kind of, I would say, tepid April Fool's Day in climbing <laughs> media. I think people finally got the memo about that. I was, I was like, yeah, it's pretty weak. It is pretty year. weak. Nobody... I, I saw a few. Um, there was a few uh, April Fool's Day gags from you know the usual players in the climbing media world or brand world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was, I gotta say, I was like pleasantly surprised to be mm-hmm. so disappointed in, in the right. output. Cause that isn't, wasn't that a taps thing like a few years ago? Yeah, it was it taps yeah. or the run out. I can't remember. <laughs> they're all I the same. They're, they, they all come in the same, <laughs> but it, there has been a, you, you went on record somewhere as being anti April fools gags. And I was like, I was kind of more in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there was just like, yeah, I think. I think post pandemic and like world is ending kind of vibes we're dealing with at the moment. I think there's just like, there's just not much stomach for that kind of like, you know, humor to sell things. I don't know. Well, so climbing magazine came through. Um, I knew they would, (laughs) Um, but they did this thing where uh, they, preface their April Fool's gag article with April Fool's colon and then the name and then the article that which was the April Fool's gag. So oh. they gave away the joke in the headline. All right, what? So their their headline was April Fool's colon National Park Service to install moving walkways in J Tree. I mean you're what? not even trying at that really? point. Yes. They just they said April Fool's Yeah, look it up. It's online. Oh my god! I don't know if they, they might have like added just, that afterward, um, after April Fools. But that—that's the article I saw was April Fools colon, and then the you know the onion then style the, the gag, satire. the onion style thing, yeah, which so, is hilarious. Like moving walkways, it's hilarious. It's oh, hilarious. It's so funny. Yeah, because I mean, it's you know when you think of like, I mean, J Tree, it fits like so. <laughs> you couldn't. I mean, you couldn't just say that about any park or any climbing area anywhere you know like there's i mean that's so clever because get it joshua tree i mean rifle would have no. been better <laughs> exactly totally yeah play, yeah that would Absolutely. at least be more believable right because that's what you're trying to do you're trying to satirize things well, you're trying and, to fool people like that's yeah, the that's yeah. the whole point of the day is it's supposed to be believable enough that it's people are like huh and so why do you think they did that why do you think they put the April Fools there just so people wouldn't be upset. Well, they've been, they wouldn't I've, I've cause noticed, a fear. I've noticed they've been doing that with a lot of their posts that they share on social media on Facebook. Oh, yeah. They'll do they'll literally give like a humor warning. It says humor warning, and then it's like <laughs> oh, whatever yeah, the humor that. column is. Yeah, it's like we're just kidding. Don't 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 add us. What? Kind of a thing is what probably is going what, on with that. Isn't that so weird? I think it's just part of the whole deal of you know. Uh, just people being overly offended by every little thing, and so it's like they're they're just they're just worried that somebody will get upset that they were fooled, they were tricked, their ruse to to quote uh, Clerks, 
You don't appreciate your ruse. Um, do you remember that scene? I do. Yeah, that was a good. That was a good one. <laughs> anyway, but don't you think that's what it is? Like, a, yeah, I think like, that's what yeah. it is. I think people and they don't are, want like a bunch of emails about like, what do you? That was, huh? And then they're like, no, we were joking. Well, sometimes you um, and I often do this with my own stuff that I write, where I, I write a more inflammatory headline than what's you know the actual contents of the article. Or sometimes mm-hmm. the, the headline is actually says the opposite of what I actually believe or state in the piece, and um, it's you know it's it's an ironic rhetorical trick that you use to I don't know to, it's part of the creative freedom that you have as a as a writer or artist or of any kind to you know, to, to play with people's emotions and get them interested and get them engaged and stuff. Um, but this is just like, seems like everyone's just given up at this point. <laughs> like if you, <laughs> if you went to a comedy club and the, the comedian was like, and the punchline is, <laughs> yeah, you know, or <laughs> right. I'm about to we prepare yourselves because a joke is coming your way, folks. Yeah. Um, or, or after every joke, they're like, just kidding. Yeah. Just, just kidding. kidding. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um i did see um my my boy angus killy uh from wales he was part of a a a decent april fool's day gag that dmm did where he had a video of him climbing with a new piece of gear from dmm that was like this 60 pound like hex like oh you know that was as as big as a you know a pony keg um, and he was climbing in off with, with this huge piece of metal hanging off of his harness, which, which was pretty good. I appreciated that. Yeah. That's actually a little bit of a zing on probably on BD's giant cams, right? Yeah. Something, so. something like that. Is that how you pronounce his name? Killy? Uh, I think so. I'm not sure. Uh, I just figured it was kill. Kill. Which I love. I think it's yeah. Killy. Okay. I could be wrong. Sorry, Angus, if we're butchering your name, but nobody it's... understands what, uh, Welsh people anyway. I saw 8a.nu. They they um, did a April Fool's Day joke, and they also um, I don't know if this was post edited or you know stealth edited afterward, but they they um, also included an April Fool's per, you know disclaimer kind of right at the sure. start of it. And um, their their gag was that there's a new high powered fan for climbing being tested in Japan, and. It's hard to tell what the joke was, but I think it was, it was, it, they were trying to say like you could have like really good conditions anywhere. Okay. But, and it was also that the fan was so powerful that it could literally blow your ass up the, up the uh. wall. And so, and it's 8A was saying that they would have to start, um, you know, marking fan assisted ascents as such. Sure. Um, sure. So, why it was in Japan, I don't know. Maybe there's a, a reference there I'm not getting, but I just thought right. it was like typically the technology. Done. They're into their like they're into their technology. Maybe that was it. Maybe that was yeah. Tech, it was like yeah, know? it was like a Sony fan. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, I I'm gonna say this is that the fan thing is ripe for satire. So mm-hmm. I'll give a nod to their attempt mm-hmm. to to uh to deal with the fans yes you know, i think we've brought up fans before as well yes um dave and, graham and a dave graham episode yeah and then also the yeah the the idea of like hanging the fans on a root is yeah. pretty intense which has happened so so yeah good on them for that i guess right 
I think that's probably what the joke was, but I just, sure. it was one of those things where, um, you LOL, but you don't actually laugh. <laughs> um, I'm taking you a tour on, on of this? some, of what some, what is that? What would be the <laughs> laugh, not laugh, maybe LNL? I think lowercase LOL, it just, oh. when you, when someone writes that in a comment, you know that they're not actually mm. laughing. It's just, mm. they're like, yes, that's okay. funny. You, I got it. Yeah. Um, I'm, t- I'm, t- I'm taking you on a tour of, uh, some climbing okay. headlines I saw in the nice. last week, Chris. That's what we're talking about tonight. Um, Another piece of uh, journalism I saw involved our our boy friend of the pod Chris Sharma and his ascent of Sleeping Lion new five fifteen C. Yes. So I um, was a little bit triggered by a lot of the articles that I saw when they first came out, like right in the aftermath of his uh, glorious ascent of Sleeping Lion, because seemed to me that they were over indexing on him being 40 the ripe old age of 41 years old yes which um i happen to be as well and so mm, lucky you what's one of the only things i share in common with chris sharma <laughs> <laughs> anyway i w- it was like 41 year old chris sharma who's sure. 41 climbs sleeping lion right. at age 41, at 41. <laughs> and it was just like every sentence had to like reference his age now did you see that? Am I making that up? No, no, uh, you're not. And the funny thing is, is that I've I've accused him of being over the hill to his face on my on the Enorma cast, and so yeah, so I was also under the impression that he was done. Yeah. So maybe that it's just building on that. <laughs> okay. So the crazy thing is, I went back today to like mm-hmm. in preparation for this um, brilliant piece of journalistic inquiry that we're exploring tonight, Chris. Mm-hmm. I went back today to read these articles and. All of them had um, disappeared his age. Really? It's gone. Huh. Stealth edited it out of the article. Really? Yes. Honestly. Honestly, I didn't see a I single if article. People, if his people got, got on him. I don't know. I don't know what it was. Maybe people were having the same reaction that I had, where they were like giving people shit about saying that he was 41 and, you know, somehow implying that you can't climb hard when you're in your 40s. Right. Um, I don't know what happened, but I was curious about that. I sent a um, a DM to Delaney Miller, who wrote the piece for climbing, and asked her if if I was crazy if I had just made that up or if his age had come out of the piece. But she didn't get back to me, so okay, um, it's, it remains a mystery to me. But I, I mean, I was kind of curious to just like probe that idea with you a little bit about you know is forty one too old to cl- be climbing fifteen C? Is and am I right to feel kind of exasperated at the? Uh, the sort of implication of what everyone in the media seemed to be highlighting at that moment. I don't know. It's, it's, it does. Well, let me say this because I said it to his face, right? That he was like basically done. Mm -hmm. Um, and we (laughs) laughed about it, but, uh, um, and he, and he like kind of challenged me on it pretty hard. And so, which was clearly a reverse psychology that I was using because I actually knew that he was trying this route and I was, I was trying to help him out. But anyhow, um, it is interesting because there was I I had this feeling that like he had gotten so distracted with so many other things that yeah it was kind of like over and then there was that whole narrative of passing the torch to to Adam mm-hmm. that we dealt with like 7 or 8 years ago. Mm-hmm. It, to me honestly when we sat down to interview him, A I thought he was older than he was 
no offense, Chris, not not like in person. I wasn't like, oh my god, this guy looks terrible. But um, yeah, but just in man. my mind, like like it had been thirty years since Chris Sharma was like right. on the scene or whatever. And then um, you know, not literally, but just like I had kind of that feeling. Um, so I kind of. I don't the age thing not exactly, but I think the return to form is really an interesting story yeah. because I do think I mean he's been busy. He's started gyms. He even told me all that he started gyms. You know he's did this show and all that shit. He had kids. Right. I mean maybe that was more impressive than the age part of it. Yeah. Um, is the children part of it? Yeah, he's got two kids. <laughs> he's he's got a few gyms. He's um you know yeah. he's, he's like a businessman and you know. I, yeah, that's so maybe they focused. So. It was easy to focus on this number versus like the complications of his life, right? right. In terms of that, but I, and so they, were, I think they were expressing something that is is a bit in the ether with Chris of that, like, whoa, he's fucking climbing nearly as hard as he ever has. Right. Like, it, there is a bit of a surprise to it, and maybe the age thing just felt like an easy way to kind of express that, right? Right. Um, and again, not because he physically can't. It's just more the narrative of his life for the last few years has been a bit different. Mm-hmm. I mean, he even said that, you know, mm-hmm. he's not been unable to focus as much on that. Um, but and, and, the, yeah. and part of the reason he even did this route is because it happened to be so close to his home. So he could like mm-hmm. get out to the cliff and get, get burns in without disrupting his, his life and family and stuff too much. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway. I was um, all prepared to be pissed about that, but now I'm kind of just more interested in the in the story and understanding <laughs> the story of how this uh, age got stealth edited out of all these pieces. Um. Anyway, I'm happy now that 41 year olds are. It's no longer surprising that they can climb 515C. So, it gives me hope for never ever climbing that hard. <laughs> so what? Wait, wait. Let me ask you this: What then is an age? Like let me get, or a ta- like a frame of ages mm-hmm. that where it's just automatically impressive that you're climbing hard. I mean, there's like, you know, everybody cites uh, poor uh, Lee Sheftel, our friend Lee Sheftel, about his fourteen at fourteen at I don't know what, how old he was in his sixties, sixties, yeah, ninety. <laughs> I don't know how old he was. You know, Chuck O'Dad is up there in Salt Lake City is the other guy that like has maintained climbing like hard grades into his. 50s and 60s i think but you know what i mean like you pass an age where climbing hard everybody's like oh good job you know they're like look at that old guy still doing it you know kind of a thing yeah what age is that because i'm probably getting close um i think that it's (laughs) really changing it's really changing one the reason one reason it's changing is because um well like someone like lee sheftel he didn't start climbing until he was in his late 30s or something like that and so right there's a generation of like gym kids and maybe Chris is like among the first ones who have been climbing since they were, you know, little grommets at 12 years he's old. He's for sure. Yeah. He's first wave of that. Yeah. Stuff. So he, and he's, he's the first wave and he's going to be the one who's going to show like how hard you can climb into, into right. old age. And so right. I, I feel like we don't actually have a good example of someone like that. Who's older than Chris, um, who can, cause whatever, you know, like climbing was just a different, such a different sport 30 years ago. So yeah, it might be more and more reasonable to accept. There was like that Italian guy. Remember him? Manolo. He wasn't, he climbing like 14 D in like his fifties and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, He probably still is. He probably still is. We just don't know about it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. 
yeah so i don't know i think that's a that's an interesting thing to follow um but yeah i I think it's cool that he's i mean 15c is as hard as you know anything in the world right now pretty much right so yeah yeah i mean it's right there it's in the mix so we'll see who who bought i mean it's kind of at an obscure cliff right for spain even for spain oh it is at sirana never mind yeah i was thinking of that Cova day. Oh yeah, whatever. That's close to his house. Yeah, Sierra is pretty obscure. <laughs> um. Okay. So next up, I, I I found this interesting article just about how Bishop was like closed down this spring. Did you hear about that? Well, I saw the pictures. Yeah. Of the road. Mm-hmm. And it's like a four mile hike, I think. Yeah. Now. So it's not exactly closed, but you know how many people are going to hike four miles. In and out, right. or something like that. So, so I wonder people what's, have been. I wonder what's going on with that. I mean, like, is there are people stashing pads and making the trek in and out of the buttermilks, or is it just like no one's going out there? Uh, I know. I mean, I saw I saw a couple people posting about being about climbing out there. Mm-hmm. That's how I it said something about a four mile hike. So I don't. Know, that's not ver- that's not something I've I know for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I doubt it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know. Would you climb in rifle if you had to hike four miles in? Uh, no. No. <laughs> I, I don't even go to walls if it's like four minutes walking to get there. It's more that it's like if you're used to it not being like that, then, you know, I don't know. It's more of that. Like I, I've hiked four miles to go climbing before for sure. But yeah. Anyway. If someone it, said like you had to get out of your car like, yeah, way up the road towards your house there and just start walking down the road. You fuck, nobody would go. I wouldn't go. Would you go? I wouldn't go. Um, it's interesting. Like, remember when the road almost washed out? That was probably two or three miles from the canyon. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. If it had washed out entirely, we wouldn't have gone. No, you know, fuck we wouldn't no. Have. Unless we, like, carried a bike across. But even riding our bike that far, we probably wouldn't have gone. No. It would have been too much work. Yeah. <laughs> um, But Bishop is, like the Mecca for spring breakers, you know, it's like gets gang banged in, in March usually. So, um, I found that interesting that it was basically, it's been shut down by the drought or not the drought, the, uh, opposite of the drought, the amount of yeah, snow the, and rain the and flooding. Stuff, the flooding. Yeah. And actually spring break in general, I think across the U S was a little bit of a dud for a lot of climbers. Cause the, I know the Creek was pretty wet. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know how that goes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if Can't. you even looked at the, if you looked at yeah. the super crack buttress in March, you go fuck yourself. Yeah. You should you be in jail. Well just like explode a bomb all over it. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah. So I, I don't know that, that, that it all fits, but I mean, California is a wreck. Like the Yosemite closed. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything is, is definitely, um, you know, as far as climbing, the spring climbing season's kind of going to be a mess. And, uh, you know, everybody's just like whistling past the graveyard right now, as far as flooding is concerned, because it's. I mean, it's coming mm-hmm. like massive flooding is coming. It's just when the sun decides to turn itself into the burning orb again, which will happen anytime now. So, right. Um, well, part of the, um, it wasn't just the spring breakers that got hosed. Um, the flash Foxy festival was in Bishop this spring. Oh, really? And, um, they decided to do it anyway, but they did it without the outdoor climbing component. Um, which, was fine. I mean, like we've been part of clinics and stuff and know how weather can, you have to kind of change plans with your clinic goers, but there was a little bit of scuttlebutt about the fact they had like a no refund policy. And so like some Mm. people 
who had kind of planned to attend this festival from, I don't know, like the East Coast or something, were like, I'm not going to fly all the way to Bishop if I can't climb in the buttermilks and, you know, I'm not going to go to this festival now. So um, right. they were hoping to get a refund, but it sounds like, sounds like they didn't. I'm not really sure, but. Um, I, I don't, I mean, I have to totally agree with that. The you no refund, refund policy. Yeah. No, I'm sure it's in the policy when you buy the, buy the pass. Right. So as a guide, you know, I just know how that is. Like, it's just the way it goes. Yeah, totally. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's reasonable. And it sounded like it still was pretty successful. A lot of people, I think they did some like road work and stuff and did some maintenance. Yeah. I mean, stuff. isn't it mostly, I mean, aren't those like those festivals mostly about hanging out with other climbers. I think so. Like I, I always say when I go to Lander, it's like, I, I mean, I've definitely gone to the festival and not climbed mm -hmm. at all, mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, it makes sense to me, but I mean, I'm not, I'm not normal. I mean, and if you don't climb very much and it's, this was like your one big weekend to get away from Chicago or wherever you're from, I can see being upset that it wasn't outdoorsy, but, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's just the way it goes. If you're a rock climber and you climb outside, then that's something you should have learned to accept by now is that your plans can be foiled by the weather, which is why you like climbing outside is nature and part of nature is the fucking weather, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like the big part, actually. Yeah, totally. Well, hopefully Bishop dries up and people can get back to business out there, which is uh, send in the gnar and yeah. spraying about it on Instagram. Um, okay. My last, uh, story for you, Chris, um, and this could probably deserve its own segment, but, um, did you see this new e-grader website? Um, I've, I've only been following the, um, the goings on among the various British and UK athletes that I, um, follow mm -hmm. and, and I've been, um, you know, I've been sort of jokingly there. A lot of them are taking it very seriously and I'm not because I've never taken <laughs> British grade seriously because yeah. they're they're too. I mean, anything where a great a literal grade is hard, very severe, or whatever hard, very hard, severe, severe, very hard, or whatever. <laughs> You're like, come on, you guys. <laughs> so anyway, what's going on? I know there's the E grader. Something about like all the hard roots are compressed at the top right now, or something. According to I read Tom's I read Tom's post, Tom Randall's post. Yeah. Um, so. um yeah, I mean, well, like, when was the last time you heard of anything, like, harder than E10 or E11 or something? That was, like, in the news, yeah, no. like, 25 years ago or something. Yeah. And clearly, people are climbing, like, so much harder than that. Um, but basically, that's still more or less the top end of the scale. And so, I think that's kind of what stemmed from this, uh, from, from this website idea, which is a product of Tom Randall, James Pearson... Um, Neil Gresham and Steve McClure, and maybe there's others involved, but it's super interesting. Like basically you enter a, a French grade, so a difficulty rating, and then you enter a danger point. So you get from bolted spore climb to extremely dangerous. Mm -hmm. And um, you put these two things in and it converts. Uh, oh, and then you also have to, you, you're asked the question, do pads make the route safer? And you click yes or no. And then you get um you get a a a grade an e grade out of that and um it's completely insane like <laughs> like if you like 6a is what like 59 or something yeah so yeah it's for 510a or something okay like that. so i'm going to do it right now 6a bolted sport climb convert grade did i use pads no okay so that's 
Easy E1. Whoa. Okay. So 510 bolted sport climb is an easy E1. Um, because isn't the system that the E's pick up where the hard, very hard, severe thing leave, left off? Yeah. Hard. And wasn't that's like it five, like 5'7, five, 5'8? Five, yeah. You know, yeah. And wasn't it the same problem as the American system ran into the YDS years ago? Because that happened with that too, where they, because they stopped at 510 and, and um, they didn't want to go any higher, and so everything got compressed. Right. And that's when they came up with the the A, B, C, D, and the, and everything yeah, else. So yeah. the same thing happened. So I think that's why the E's pick up. Like E1 is actually, yeah, like 510-ish because mm-hmm. everything below that's covered by the old scale, which is the, the adjective, like said, adjectives. The, had all the adjectives. Yeah. Hard, very that. severe. Very severe. hard. Very hard. hard. <laughs> and severe. And severe. <laughs> that's five nine plus (laughs) um so let's do this so six a with one standard trad that's like the easiest okay so that gets you to easy e2 you get to slightly run out hard e2 so it just kind of bumps it up to like easy e2 hard e2 hard e3 so all if i could go um 6a to the highest danger point rating which is extremely dangerous that's easy e5 whoa so e5 can also be like 12 512 12a or something but, but safe but safe ish but right. also trad ish so that's right. like insane to me like yeah and the um well th- let me say this when i talked to steve mcclure he Maybe on the mic or maybe off, but he told me about Darth Grader, which is obviously an inspiration for this site because Darth Grader does that mm-hmm. as well um, in a in a different way. You describe the route, and then it gives you a grade, and you can choose which which system you want the grade from. Mm-hmm. But it asks you things like, you know, how hard is the crux V grade, and then is there a rest? Is it no hands? And then what happens? And so you. You describe the entire route, and then it gives you a cumulative grade. Mm. So you know where, which kind of like helps with the problem of like, you know, oh, it's an eighty, you know, it's a thirty-five meter route, but there's no, you know, that whole description you've always heard, like, but there's no move harder than twelve A, right. but it's all twelve A. So what is it rated? Right. You know, and that's what you do is you describe the rests and things like that, and it comes oh, up with okay. a grade. And that, Steve about. told me about that, so I assume that he's probably. Uh, was inspired by that site, whoever came up with that. It, it, I think it's also a, a British site or UK site, um, the Darth Grader. Okay, I'll check that out. That sounds that sounds yeah. much more interesting to me than this E grade. It's bullshit. kind of for new roots, like when you're like, I don't know what to fucking rate this thing, you know. So, well, to me, this all just seems like this very last ditch effort to salvage a dead and useless grading system that I think that they just need to abandon and move on from. I made a. I made a comment about that on, yeah, on uh, on Hazel's post about it. <laughs> got some good, got some good laughs. Yeah, I said to, I said just to use the 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 most sensible system in the world, which is the Australian system. <laughs> no argument. There's no way you can argue with that. Um, and then add emojis, just emojis for how scary it is. So like, the this guy with his head exploding emojis like really scary or whatever mm-hmm. and like the poop emoji <laughs> would probably mean you shit your pants or something so 
because the Australian grades don't have anything about the danger. And isn't that been always the trick in what they tried to do with the E scale was to combine the two? That's what they're trying to do, yes. Yeah. And like in the YDS, it's just the R and the X. You get that business, but the grade remains the same. But if I told and, you that there is a one grade, you know, like E5 or something, and you got on it and you had no idea if it was 10A or 12A, like, right. it's that's useless information. Right. If it was a 10A death route or a 12A, like, scary-ish route right. or, or like a 13A bolted route, like, <laughs> yeah, it's not helpful. <laughs> um. I saw Stevie Haston posted on Hazel's thing, a uh, pretty interesting comment about how this is all getting a little stupid, which um, we obviously agree with, but it, it it's was, on brand for Stevie Haston too. Yeah. <laughs> but his point was that this was, this made more sense when everything was attempted on site. And now that's like no longer the case. And so the, right. these, this like system is kind of out of uh, sync with the style in which most people are attempting um, trad climbs in, right. in the UK over there. So what do you think? I mean, have you seen anybody calling for its demise, for just scrapping it and starting over? Well, that's what I feel like we're doing right now. Um, yeah, so hopefully we, they're listening. Which as, Two as American in, guys that don't climb very much anymore yeah, this is, can come up with a great <laughs> system for you guys. <laughs> this is tap spotter for sure. <laughs> I mean, I, we'll give them a chance to like kill it themselves, and if they don't, then we'll just have to kill it ourselves on taps. Yeah, you have till January yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to get this fucking straightened out, you guys. <laughs> um, the I mean, but like, so I was just looking at like how they come up with these like death point ratings, um, and they're so subjective, like whether you know injury potential is likely or guaranteed or very likely. It's like yet another adjective that they're adding into. Yeah, this. they went back to the old system yeah. for that. It's like death very likely, death likely, likely right. very likely, death severely likely, death <laughs> extremely severely likely. Severely likely. <laughs> so they're just bad. They're like going back to their their roots, I guess. With um, with this with this whole attempt. You know, it's interesting. It, it reminds me too. Is I years ago I read a article in Surfer's Journal which was basically like big wave sur surfing is so dangerous. Why doesn't anyone die? Mm -hmm. And I mean, that was literally the gist of it. And they had like the two exceptions or three exceptions like Mark Fu or, and, and you know, who died, I think at Mavericks and, but, but by and large, you know, people get destroyed by those waves and come out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, in the very beginning, if people thought like, if, you know, one of those waves got you, you were done, right. but then they figured out that you weren't. Um, and now it's like some of those breaks have like hundreds of people in them on any given day yeah. when they used to be. And so it's, it's kind of like that in a way too, because it's like people, it's not like people do die all the time on those routes. Yeah. Now, now if someone dies in one of those huge waves, they blame COVID. Exactly. <laughs> it's just COVID plus complications. Yeah, exactly. Like he had a cough. <laughs> oh, and he was also surfing a hundred foot wave. <laughs> Chris Winter is the executive director of the Access Fund. Their latest project is the Protect America's Rock Climbing Act, a bill before Congress that would bring consistency to the federal climbing management policy 
and help protect some of America's most iconic wilderness climbing areas. Well, you were just in uh, Washington on behalf of the climbing world to uh, work on this new legislation, the Protect America's Rock Climbing Act, H.R. 1380, for you political geeks out there. Before we get into what the bill offers, why don't you just like give us a background on how we got to this place in terms of yeah. this discussion about fixed anchors in wilderness? Because Chris and I have already done one podcast about um, about this issue back when uh, you know the Bolts and Joshua Tree were mm. a point of focus a couple years ago. So I don't know if it makes sense to start there. If you want to, you know, take us back to 1964 with the Wilderness Act. But um, yeah, how did we get to this point in time? Yeah, I'll try to keep it pretty high level. I can nerd out on this stuff real easy too. So let me know if I'm going too deep. But you know, the big issue is just really whether climbers are allowed to use fixed anchors in wilderness areas. Um, that's the fundamental question. And, um, uh, you know, fixed anchors are essential for wilderness climbing in general. And we could talk about, and maybe we will talk about all the amazing places that climbers enjoy that are in wilderness areas around the country. But of course, so many of our iconic climbing destinations are protected as wilderness areas. And so there's been kind of a question over whether fixed anchors are consistent with the protections of the Wilderness Act. And the act was passed in 1964. So since that time, gosh, it's going on almost uh, 60 years now, Park Service, the Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, um, those federal land management agencies have allowed climbers to use fixed anchors in wilderness areas, but they've been subject to management and regulation. And so the biggest thing, of course, is we can't use power drills because power drills are motorized. And so that's plainly prohibited by the Wilderness Act, the plain text of the act. Um, there's nothing in there that address fixed anchors squarely. And so um, we have had this um, uh, this relationship with the land management agencies where we say we won't use power drills. The access fund strongly supports that. And we will use fixed anchors sparingly only when absolutely necessary, when there's no other protection available. Removable protection isn't available. We might need it to... Um, you know, to link up a couple cracks or maybe um, to repel off a of formation. Um, but the, we certainly haven't had fixed anchors generally or categorically prohibited um, as something in wilderness areas. And so we've been working on that for a long time since the Access Fund was founded in 1991. This has been a core issue that we have worked on nonstop for over 30 years. And so just recently, when you all did the earlier podcast on Joshua Tree, was right when the Park Service was starting to tell the climbing community that it was going to change its fundamental interpretation of the Wilderness Act and that it was going to treat fixed anchors for the first time as prohibited installations. And the reason that word installations is so central to this whole story is that there's one section of the Wilderness Act, Section 4C, that specifically addresses what's prohibited. And there's a long list of things in that section, like motorboats, aircrafts, temporary roads, motorized equipment, aka power drill, mechanized travel, aka mountain bikes. And then there's a couple things at the end. And one of those is installations. So it provides this long list of prohibited things that, you know, you don't see many of those things in wilderness areas, roads, aircraft, motorboats. And then the last word in that long list is installations. And so now the agencies are saying, well, now for the first time after 60 years, your fixed anchors are going to be treated as prohibited installations. And so that's kind of how we have gotten to where we are today. Give us a, an idea of um, 
you know, wilderness areas, like what are the places, you know, I know some of them, but what are the places yeah. that really jump out um, that climbers would know about that constitute wilderness areas? Because it's not obviously everywhere, but what are we looking at um, as far as that's concerned? And, you know, where is it in national parks and, yeah. and things like that? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty amazing um, when you stop to think about it and talk about all those places. So, I mean, of course, the most iconic climbing area that is protected as wilderness is Yosemite Valley, um, El Cap. So everything in the valley above a certain elevation above the valley floor, I think it's like 300 feet or 350 feet, um, is protected wilderness. So El Cap, pretty much the entirety of El Cap is wilderness, but also a lot of the other um, amazing climbing in the valley is protected. Um, the diamond on Long's Peak in Rocky Mountain National Park. Um, you know, I think the first ascent of the diamond was in the early 60s. And it was protected as wilderness in 2009. So climbers had been using fixed anchors and climbing on the diamond for well over uh, 50 years before it was actually protected as wilderness. And now almost all of the good alpine backcountry climbing in Rocky is designated as wilderness. Um, Zion National Park is wilderness, of course. But then also forest service areas that are incredible places like the Wind Rivers the Sierras, um, the Alpine Lakes wilderness in Washington, you know, Mount Stewart and all that incredible Alpine granite. Um, much of the North Cascades is Forest Service wilderness or Park Service wilderness. Um, so the list just goes on and on and on. The incredible places that climbers have explored for over 100 years, um, many of those most inspiring places are wilderness areas. All right. So tell us about um, this new bill. Uh, one of the interesting things that jumped out to me about it is that it is kind of a bipartisan bill. We've got a, a Republican from Utah and a Democrat from Colorado, uh, two representatives who are co-sponsoring this bill together. Tell us what the bill is. And also, I'd love to know just how this unlikely uh, rare bipartisan partnership came to be. You know, just stepping back from the big picture, you know, when the uh, when the land management agencies start to do something that um, we think uh, conflicts with the Wilderness Act, then it's natural for Congress to kind of step in and um, set some guidelines and to provide some direction and some guidance to the agencies. And so that's really the role of Congress to tell the land management agencies what to do many times. And that's what we're asking Congress to do in this situation. Let's not jettison 60 years of history and suddenly go down this crazy path where our most basic safety equipment is prohibited. And so we've asked Congress to step in and provide some guidance to the land management community to preserve the way that we have all been going about doing our business for the last 60 years. That's the, that's the attempt is to preserve the status quo and then set a, a foundation for us to continue to collaborate moving forward. So, um, you know, we maintain at the Access Fund lots of relationship with congressional offices all over the country. And uh, Congressman Curtis and Congressman Nagus are both champions for the climbing community. And they're champions because they have a lot of climbing in their districts. I mean, Congressman Curtis represents, you know, Utah um, and his district stretches all the way from Salt Lake City down into southeast Utah. So it's kind of crazy if you look at the map of his district. But the people who live in his district rely on wilderness climbing. I mean, a lot of the climbing in the canyons, of course, is in wilderness areas. Uh, and so um, his constituents have a really strong stake in this whole debate. Congressman Goose is the same way. I mean, his district encompasses Rocky Mountain National Park, which we were just talking about, and lots of other wilderness climbing opportunities. Um, and they both also have a lot of guides and outfitters and small businesses that rely on outdoor recreation. So they have been long-term 
um, allies um, and friends for the climate community. So when this issue came up, it was natural for us to go and start to talk to their offices. Um, Congressman Curtis also worked really closely with us on new wilderness areas that were protected in 2019 in Emory County, Utah, as part of the Dingle Act that passed in 2019. And we worked with Congressman Curtis really carefully on that proposal. Really cool area that got protected, lots of wilderness climbing. And that legislation uh, included language that specifically said nothing in this act that protects this area's wilderness prohibits climbing or the use of fixed anchors. And so Congressman Curtis led the effort to get that language included. And we worked with Congressman Curtis closely on that effort. And so we have, you know, this long relationship with the congressman and his staff. And so we were really excited that it was bipartisan and that both Congressman Curtis and Nagus stepped up and showed leadership and support for the climbing community. So this bill is actually quite short. I actually just read it. It takes like two, uh, less than a minute to read yeah. because it's... Um about a two two or three pages long and it seems Wow, you to, read really fast. I read really fast. <laughs> I'm a professional. Professional um, reader. It, <laughs> it seems to uh to uh, as you said like it it's attempting to preserve the status quo which I'd like to unpack what the, what exa- yeah. actually that means but really what it's doing is it's saying we would like Congress to make recommendations for how to treat fixed anchors in wilderness. There's nothing in it per se about what those recommendations might look like or be, and so what what is the purpose of this bill? I guess is it, it doesn't seem to have much substance to it beyond we would like you to weigh in on the topic of what to do about these darn fixed anchors in wilderness. The way the bill is written, it's simple and it's elegant, and it basically is an instruction from Congress to the land management agencies to develop guidance on wilderness climbing. So it says, you know, the secretaries of agriculture and interior shall develop guidance on wilderness climbing within 18 months. And then it goes further and it says that the guidance should address climbing and the use of fixed anchors as allowable activities, allowable uses in wilderness areas. So go and do the guidance and fundamentally manage climbing as an allowable use. Um, That's it. And then um, and then there's some public participation. The climbing community gets to weigh in on those guidance documents um, and provide public notice and comment. Uh, and so that's very simple. Uh, it doesn't kind of intrude into the normal discretion of the agencies as to like how specifically to do this. But Congress is setting a baseline understanding that climbing and the use of fixed anchors are allowable in wilderness areas. And that's what we need to preserve the status quo in terms of how we have been doing things for 60 years. Would that apply to all federal wilderness or would it just be specific to would the you know managers of Joshua Tree have different come up with potentially different guidance for their uh, park versus the diamond or something like that? Yeah, so that fundamental baseline of climbing is allowable and the fixed anchors is allowable. That would apply to all the land management agencies that are responsible for managing wilderness areas. So there's four of them: the Park Service, the Bureau of Land Management, and the Fish and Wildlife Service all manage wilderness within the Department of Interior. And then the Forest Service manages wilderness within the Department of the Agriculture. So there's actually two secretary, cabinet level secretaries involved, uh, and there's four agencies. And this bill would instruct all of those agencies and people to manage climate as allowable. And then individual park units or the different departments could have um, discretion to do certain things differently. So to tailor how they implement that in in, uh, different ways, depending on local conditions. And we also support that kind of regulatory flexibility 
So it sets a very basic baseline, climbing's allowable, sets a, a timeline for guidance, and then allows the departments and agencies to figure out how specifically to implement that. And there'd be flexibility for local districts and park units to, um, to innovate if they want to. You know, with this bill coming in, coming to pass now, uh, you know, you, you, the access fund and climbers in general, you know, we've been doing sort of a, an ad hoc campaign for, like you said, since the access fund started. I mean, this was yeah. a major issue um, that Armando Menacal talked about on my podcast um, years ago that yeah. really was fundamentally part of starting the, the, the access fund and, and sort of separating it from the AAC, which I think, you know, traditionally was sort of anti-bolt and, um, you know, the access fund had to find itself like almost at odds with its sort of parent unit there and, and split off, but that's a whole nother story. But nevertheless, I mean, we've had this kind of like putting out the fires as they popped up or, you know, trying to lobby with specific, you know, superintendents and, and, and climbing rangers as it's happened. So why has it come, do you think, to pass that finally this sort of big move is necessary um, in the face of all these prior kind of small battles, um, some won, some lost actually, um, Canyonlands is always my, my sort of bugaboo of, of a yep. place that just banned it all and no one, no one was able to do anything about it. But yeah, how, how is it that this big major kind of move is out, coming to pass now versus, you know, 20 years ago when you were still fighting this battle? That's a really good question and something we're still trying to figure out a little bit, but it got kicked off because it was the park service that decided to do things differently. That's why this whole thing started over the last um, 18, 24 months is that it's the Park Service and Joshua Tree that said for the first time, all right, we're changing course. Fixed anchors are prohibited installations. That's what we're going to implement in our local climate management plan here in J-Tree. Uh, and then we were like, whoa, that's a really big change. That's going to set a precedent that will apply across the country. We don't know why the Park Service isn't being upfront that this is a national policy that's changing. They're just talking about this in J-Tree. And so we started to kind of raise alarm bells that, hey, you know, all this work that we've done for 30 years is now at risk. And there's this new national policy. Uh, we better have start having a national conversation about this. And so kind of, you know, your question, Chris, is why is the Park Service doing this? Why, why is this um, change in position happening from the Park Service right now? And that's a really good question. We don't know the answer to that. We believe it's being driven by a few people in the wilderness stewardship office at the national level on the park service. But we honestly don't know why they have decided to change course now. They haven't said why the change in policy. Um, but that is what kicked off this um, this congressional push is that we were responding to the park services change in policy. I have my theories. I think it's 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 has the same same impetus as the is why I can't find a parking spot in rifle. Um, <laughs> is that I I mean I think we've we've honestly you know we we've reached a place in climbing with its popularity um, where we're all, we all sort of feeling the impacts of its, of its popularity. And I, I, I mean, that's just my theory is that, you know, with Los Angeles so close and, and J tree um, you know, the impact of how many people want to climb these days is, is pretty significantly different than 20 years ago or 30 years ago when, when this whole thing kind of started. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I would imagine that there's a little bit of like, Whoa, look at all these people. Like, you know, and the impetus is always with these, these, um, their whole purpose is to manage. And so it's like, well, we need to manage. And so our impetus is to manage. So let's manage. Um, there's a good chance that your theory is right. Um, certainly climb has gotten more popular. Um, J tree is a very unique place, of course, because it's 
you know, maybe the largest by area climbing area in the world. It's massive. There's a lot of wilderness climbing there. And it's also really close to one of a, you know, a huge population center. So the wilderness climbing issues in J-Tree are incredibly unique. But I think you're right. The land management community in general, I think, is overwhelmed by the increase in visitor use around the country. And a lot of times when that happens, um, they look for ways to say no. They look for new ways to say no. And I think that might be what's driving this. What is to prevent these managers, assuming the HR 1380 passes, to adopt something similar to what Joshua Tree has been trying to do, where if their guidance is simply that climbing's allowable and bolts are permissible and to come up with the laws for it, what is to prevent them from, um, I don't know, having some kind of very limited view on what all of that entails such that, you know, no new routes might be developed, but we're allowed to maintain existing bolts that are deemed legitimate bolts or legitimate routes by the park or something like that. How do we get out of the, this seems to be um, offering some pretty powerful entities the opportunity to weigh in on our sport and potentially change the status quo quite drastically with we're going from a place where there are no there there is nothing really on paper as to sort of guide us on terms of how we approach the sport and there's been a you know a kind of an, a happy status quo that we followed as climbers over that time but it's been a a situation where yeah maybe that's not you know law and letter part of the wilderness act but people kind of turn a blind eye and climbing's allowed here but not over there and and everyone kind of knows that through these unspoken norms that have have kind of been ironed out but this now seems to be you know giving giving um you know the highest highest uh most powerful people in government the the mandate to weigh in on exactly what climbing looks like for all of us so how do you think about that i don't want to get too nerdy but i'll just drop please do do yeah it's it's hard not to we only have nerds listening to our podcast so this is a nerdy podcast (laughs) (laughs) um there's a fine line between cool and nerdy so let's let's just go full nerd for a few minutes but you know the way the wilderness act works generally is that if something is allowed you know, within a wilderness, it can still be regulated or managed. So it's not just a free-for-all, right? And so this has been our view of how the land management community should manage climbers. Um, climbers allowed, but it's, you know, we have to be um, responsible. And so the managers can come in and say, you can't climb there if you're having an impact on wilderness character, solitude, or natural resources or cultural resources. So of course, you've always supported land managers from saying things like, um, you have to uh, leave the raptors alone to nest. So you're going to not climb there for a while. Or this area is too sensitive. There's an endangered and threatened plant species there. So you can't climb there. Or in some cases, there's other wilderness uses that are taking place, hiking or backpacking or something else. And your climbing is going to perhaps interfere with the experience of those other people. And so, you know, we're going to limit you uh, in certain areas. We've always supported that kind of management regime where it's like allowable, but subject to management to protect wilderness character, natural resources and cultural values. So that's the system we've had for 60 years. Um, Once something is deemed prohibited, right, once something's deemed prohibited, like a motorboat or an aircraft or motorized vehicles, the situation changes. Then it's you can only do that thing that's prohibited unless absolutely necessary to meet the minimum requirements for the administration of the wilderness area. And so that's a crazy test to be able to meet, which is why you don't see many 
aircraft or motorboats or motor vehicles or houses or structures in wilderness areas because that exception to the prohibition is very uh, tightly written by Congress in the act and very tightly administered by the agencies to limit those prohibited uses in wilderness areas. It's really difficult to get an exception in many circumstances. And so that's kind of the fundamental thing we're looking at is if it's prohibited but subject to management to protect natural and cultural resources, that's what we want. If it's prohibited and then we have to uh, you know, justify an exception every time we want to use a fixed anchor, replace a new fixed anchor or replace an existing fixed anchor, that is going to be a really difficult standard to meet. And it's going to result in us losing a lot of historic climbs and it's going to make uh, fixed anchor maintenance much more difficult and it's going to create safety issues for the climbing community. And so that is my very nerdy response to your very good question, which is it's, uh, it all comes back to how prohibited uses are managed under the Wilderness Act versus allowed uses. And we're about now that we're, we're looking at climbing going from allowed to prohibited. And that's a really bad thing for climbers. One of my um, gripes with this discussion is that that we view bolts in general as like they have to be this limited thing that are carefully placed in limited quantities and only only as a potential last resort which is on on many levels just kind of out of line with what climbing ought to be in my view um or what the potential for climbing ought to be and i view bolts as being a part of the climbing experience of a route and routes are either good or bad, but they, that bolts are just one element of that. And certainly good routes are better than bad routes and bad routes are better than no routes. And so I, I've, I find the sort of the hedging and concessions that are often offered about how limited bolting needs to be, to be, um, sort of out of line with what the, with the values of that we as a climbing community ought to ought to hold, which is more roots are better than less roots. And the same goes goes with, uh, you know, not using like something like power drills to place a bolt. Like it just sort of seems like the most arbitrary and silly distinction to draw. Like no one is, no one expects, um, you know, cement to be mixed by hand when they're fixing a pothole in Yosemite, you know, they bring in a cement truck and fix the road. And and so the the point is that the road is fixed and that uh and that they use the all of the the modern tool, tools to do so if a bolt is going to be placed in a piece of rock what does it matter if it's placed there you know in 2 minutes or versus 20 by hand so those are two of the the things that I kind of often find myself bristling about when I when I enter these conversations well, I'm, I mean, I think it's, I have um, so many things that I think about when I, and I have this conversation so many times. I'm Chris, I'm interested what your take on that is about, you know, minimizing the use of bolts in wilderness areas and, you know, prohibition on power drills and all that stuff. Because I think everybody often has a different opinion on these things. And it's interesting to talk to people about it. I'm very practical in the sense of like, I get, I get it. Like it's a compromise and we have to compromise about how we talk to land managers and, you know, and maybe compromise a few of our expediencies and, and maybe even some of our values to a certain extent, you know, and, and if you've listened to the show, Chris, you know that I'm also a rabble rouser and like, you know, if it's like, I know plenty of, of bolts and uh, that have been placed in the black Canyon and then the on your, and on El Cap with a power drip and the drill and they got away with it. And I'm like, all right, you know, 
<laughs> whatever. I'm not going to scold those people. I'm like, you took your chance. You didn't get a ticket. You know, you got to put in a good bolt. So I'm, I'm kind of in the middle. I don't have a, a strong stance like we should be fighting against the prohibition against drills. Um, you know, and I, I, and back to my, my, my point about, or my idea about this, the park service or whoever feeling this pressure that we're all feeling in climbing, um, from a lot more people is that instead, and Andrew and I've talked about this on here too, is that, you know, the, the fringe person, you know, we, we think we have these values and like, yeah, you should try not to just bolt the living shit out of something that everybody can see in a wilderness area. And you should try not to use bolts. And we have these values that are sort of unspoken about, uh, you know, minimizing impacts, but that, you know, it only has to break down a couple times. And, and honestly, you know, the petroglyph bolting guy is probably yeah. in the mix here about the park service reaction like that, that brought this weird thing to the forefront that nobody had been thinking about. And, and the damage I think is, is deep from that yeah. incident and from the, the, the press that it got. And, and that's all you need. And unfortunately, like I want it all to be free and open, but I also realize that, you know, that the regulation has to be there. And it's just like I was, I was, you know, talking to someone recently about how when the, the park shut down for one of these stupid government shutdowns, like in 10 minutes, yahoos show up and start driving their trucks all over the Joshua tree and pulling Joshua trees out. Like it only takes a minute before like Lord of the Flies is open. And, and so it's like, I understand the need for, you know, these checks on, on our worst impulses and i think we used to think climbing we were all on the same same page about these things but it's part of the expansion of its popularity is to bring in what i've jokingly called these fortresses against information which you know leads to someone thinking that that petroglyph is actually just graffiti and i'll just put a big bolt right here and like yeah and we have no control over that and we still don't but i get the impetus for having some controls in to try to kind of limit that. I mean, man, that petroglyph incident was terrible. And I think you're absolutely right that it has had an impact on this larger discussion, not only around wilderness climbing, even though that was like roadside, um, but just climbing management in general. And also, you know, our um, relationship with indigenous communities, I think it's had a really big impact on that conversation, which is important. But Andrew, to your point, you know, I think, um, it's, it's, uh, gosh, it's such an interesting and difficult conversation and people fall all across the spectrum. And so my personal opinion is that I don't take like an ethical position on bolts or fixed anchors or sport climbing versus track climbing. I mean, I love sport climbing. I love track climbing. Um, sport climbing has this place, fixed anchors have their place. Um, and I agree that the growing community needs climbing opportunities, probably more of them. And I think it would be a shame if we told people that you have to be really good and be willing to risk your neck with no fixed anchors in order to experience wilderness climbing. I think that's extremely elitist and would be a terrible mistake and would take away that opportunity for so many people, which would be really a shame, I think, and would actually drive a wedge between people in these incredible areas. Um, So I think it all depends on the particular context and the situation that we're talking about. Um, I do think it makes sense to say removable protection is preferred minimize our impact. And beyond that, I think it's, is the activity of climbing having an impact on the resource or the experience? And so I think that has to be the question that guides our management. What is the impact of the overall activity? Not just are you putting a bolt or hole in the wall, because that in and of itself almost has no impact on the environment. 
You might not, you know, you might think, God, that's an ethical, uh, an ethical problem to drill a hole in a piece of rock, but it's not actually having a meaningful impact on the environment. The question is whether the impact of climbing itself as an activity in the human traffic, whether that has an impact. And so I just think this whole focus on bolts and fixed anchors is um, a distraction from what we really need to be doing, which is balancing sustainable access, which is good for the American public and connects people to the outdoors and creates champions for conservation. We have to balance that against the impact to the resource from having people out there. And that, that's the conversation we should be having with the land managers. Yeah, you'll find no disagreement with uh, with me on any of those points. Yeah, that, I, I, I fully agree that with really all that. That really echoed something you've said before, Andrew. Yeah, absolutely. The idea that the bolt is, you know, this, uh, like, like I've always said, like the stainless steel is like one of the most inert, you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, things in, in the universe, literally like in the universe. And uh, yeah, so it has no, I mean, taking a big crap in the wilderness has way more impact than a bolt. But anyhow, uh, I mean, sorry, leaving a bunch of nylon behind that gets chewed up by, you know, snaffle hounds and then made into their nests and ingested. I mean, that's like so stupid. Why would we be pervert that over something that's going to last for years and can't be chewed on and ingested by, you know, all the rodents out there? I mean, it's just like crazy that we would think that's a better solution. Yeah, I, I it's um, I mean, I, I appreciate the uh, the call to simplicity here with the bill about just trying to weigh in on the topic that to to assert the the validity of climbing, to assert the validity and use fair usage of bolts. I do worry about those two distinctions you carved out, Chris, about the um, the ethical questions about how many bolts should be placed and where and so forth, and yeah. is you know asserting that sport climbing is just as valid as trad climbing and so forth. Um, those are, I believe, ethical questions that are best left to the the climbers themselves and the the vision of the first ascensionist. And yep. um, I would, I don't know how that gets uh, conveyed into this kind of legislative machine. And I think that's probably one of the frustrations that you, you're constantly dealing with every day. Um, so yeah, I, I just fully agree with what you just said. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we're seeing right now is in Joshua Tree, right? They're kind of moving already towards implementing this thing where it's like, you know, presume prohibited, but then we'll issue exceptions. And there's in, J- in J-Tree, they're saying, well, how are we going to decide which routes are entitled to exceptions? What does that look like? And the system they're moving towards is actually enforcing ethical standards by the land managers saying, well, you know, if your face climbing route has like a few bolts, it's okay. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll think that's all right. But if there's a lot of bolts, then it's coming out. And so they're basically, Joshua Tree's in the process of implementing this right now saying, well, you can only have a few bolts. It has to be run out, dangerous face climbing, or there has to be at least one or two gear placements, but you can't have a fully bolt protected face climb that's safe, reasonably spaced bolts under this new prohibition. And so it's crazy that they're moving towards this like ethical the ethical police now through this installation uh, application. It's insane. Well, there's nothing ethical about that. I mean, there's uh, I know. ethics by what standard? I mean, the paradox of wilderness in general is that we assert that we're allowed to travel into it and to enjoy its natural beauty, and we go to great lengths to protect it, but our very presence is is at odds with um, with what the some of the core claims of wilderness are. Um, I don't, like you said, I don't see bolts as being part of whether something 
is or isn't wilderness. It's one of the smallest rungs on the on the scales of impact that is yeah. possible, you know, in terms of recreating in a wilderness area. There's the trails that go in, the you know, the the belay stations that need to be built to to prevent erosion from happening at the base of cliffs the toilet systems uh, to the degree that they have any and so, and so on and so forth. And so all of that is um, far more impactful, so to speak. Um, but you, you can argue that it's all, you know, you, you build this structure and it's all contained and it's contained to specific areas. And um, if that is part of our legal rights as, as people in this country, you're allowed to, to go on and enjoy ourselves on public lands, then, why are we even, you know, talking about bolts? Like that's like such a small, small part of the whole thing. It's such a climber concern. It's partially in, in what you just said, Chris, about a few bolts versus a lot of bolts. They're pulling that from the climbing community, They're, especially the old guard in a place like Joshua Tree. You know, a big sector of the of the climbing population, and, and J Tree is a good, you know, a good example of this are in agreement with that and they're sort of siding with that and they're they're pulling this idea of more bolts is bad and a few bolts is good and a scary route is good and a in a fun popular safe route is bad they're pulling that from the climbing community and i wish the climbing community would shut the fuck up about siding with these things because that's where they're getting it from they didn't just make that up you know they got it from the old school j tree people and they're and the old school J Street people are still saying that on forums that the Park Service is reading. And and so it's like, yes, it's like we're shooting our, you know, we shot ourselves in the foot a long time ago with these debates. These land managers are just building on them. Shut up, everybody. Like, that, that goes back let to, us worry yeah, about that. <laughs> that, goes, that goes back to what I was just saying earlier about why I find this frustrating where bolt, like fewer bolts is viewed as this kind of concession that the climbers have to make in order to be on good standing with the land managers. It, it stems from this archaic view of what a route ought to be, or just like a, a single-sided view of what a route ought to be. I'm fine with routes that are run out. I'm fine with routes that are trad. I'm fine with routes that are sport, but I'm not fine with only one of those being the correct way that we go forward. And that is a, an impoverished view of what the sport of climbing needs to be. And I mean, I, I guess if I if I could tweak what this legislation says or what the recommendations that they would potentially make, it would be that bolts are fine. They can they are allowed to be placed by any means necessary, and it's up to the climbing community to place them in the most to, up to par with what the the ethic of the area is or what the character of the area is, and 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 leave it at that. And I mean, to me, that's the status quo. And so I, I guess I do worry that there is going to be some kind of cynical manipulation of language uh, in, based on what we've seen in Joshua Tree with people saying like, yeah, climbing's fair use as long as you essentially, you know, only bolt on Tuesday, one Tuesday of the year using a hand drill and the, the bolts can't be closer than 30 feet apart or something, whatever it is, like they could come up with like ridiculous standards that would essentially make climbing a very different prospect than it is today. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, Chris, that, you know, you mentioned the old timers, the old schoolers who are like, yeah, we, you know, we like the climbing ethics that we had back in the day, but, you know, they felt just as strongly back then that the land managers should stay the hell out of it. Right. right. Don't tell us what to do. 
You know, we're the climate oh, yeah, community. That we part infer- of it makes me so mad too. We enforce our own ethics <laughs> and there's no way that a land manager can like write a piece of paper at a desk and make an informed decision on where some bolts should go. Like that's not possible. So right. now it's yeah, so now funny. Those that, people like, are some of those high fives to the land managers. Right. And it's like, why? Like, it's right like, on. It, 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 Right. You know, it's like insane because, you know, whatever ethical standards you take, you know, it is really hard to to understand why somebody is placing a fixed anchor in a certain place. And the line between ethics and safety is so gray, right? And it's all about your personal risk tolerance when the route developers out there developing a route. And so it's like, it is not possible, I think, for a lane manager to effectively get in the mix and deciding where individual fixed anchors should be placed because it's too gray. There's too much at stake and it's too difficult to balance ethics and safety and, and risk tolerance from the lay manager perspective. And when you think about moving that conversation from JTree, you know, which is relatively accessible and people can get out there and look and then think about, well, what does that mean in the Black Canyon or the North Cascades or like these remote areas? Like how the heck as a land manager is going to say, oh, you should have placed your rappel anchors like right there, or you, you know, you shouldn't use bolts. You should use some slings around a horn like 10 feet over on that ledge. Like that's impossible for a land manager to safely make that determination for the climbing community. Like that's insane to think that that's even the direction that we're headed. So um, yeah, the whole thing about land managers enforcing ethics on the climbing community is so foreign to what we think of as like our, our culture and our history. Can I ask you, uh, um, go back to the bill and ask you sort of a, a tech question or not really a technical question, but a question about the bill is, is, you know, there's sort of, you know, the old, um, you know, don't ask and they can't say no kind of thing. Yeah. Is there a danger with this bill that, you know, sort of, again, bringing it to the forefront, you know, doing sort of a showdown here and losing or, you know, the bill changing as it goes through whatever processes it, it, it goes through. I mean, even things getting attached to it, like, yeah, we'll do this, but Bears Ears is gone. How's that look? You know, or whatever. <laughs> like, um, you know, or we want oil rigs also. Like, if you want yeah. you want your installation, so do we. Um, yep. Just because ours are bigger and louder and smokier, don't worry about it. Um, so anyway, what, what are, are there risks involved with this sort of big play? There definitely are risks. Um, man, it's, it's a weird, risky time right now. I think the risk of not being advocates is that we lose safe and sustainable access over time. The risk of going to Congress is that this elevates the conversation. Um, Some people in DC, you know, would prefer that we not talk about this uh, because they don't want to deal with it. Lay managers aren't really excited to deal with this. Some congressional officers are like, okay, why are we dealing with this? Um, So it is risky. And I think folks are also just very protective of the Wilderness Act in general. Right. So, you know, the list of prohibitions in the Wilderness Act is taken really seriously because we don't want to see oil rigs. We don't want to see antennas. We don't want to see weather stations. You know, we want all these things to be limited. And so uh, we have a lot of conversations and we think hard about what are the implications for what we're trying to do for the broader issues around the Wilderness Act. You know, but the thing that I didn't say yet is like Section 4C prohibitions. Right above that is Section 4B. And that section says that wilderness areas shall be dedicated to recreational and historic uses. So that's the first thing Congress said. And then the very next subsection says, and these are the prohibited uses. And installations is the very end of that use. And so in our mind, you know, we are upholding the original vision of the Wilderness Act that everybody shared back in the 1960s as for the purposes of protecting and promoting 
primitive and dispersed recreation. That is written into the Wilderness Act as one of the core purposes. And that is like climbing and mountaineering are the epitome of primitive and dispersed recreation and always have been. So we are really confident we are upholding the spirit and the um, express intent purposes of the Wilderness Act. But yeah, the downside risks are exactly what you talk about. And this is what we hear from other people. Like the next thing you know, people are going to be wanting to drive their motorcycles through wilderness. And it's all because of you, you know, the climbers wanting their fixed anchors. You know, (laughs) you're going to be responsible for snowmobiles and mountain bikes and motorcycles and all these other things that are, you know, clearly prohibited by this other language that we're not talking about. So um, but yeah, we have that conversation a lot. Right. And and I, I've always just been like, well, just be a climber and worry about the climber part. Like, yeah. You know, that's, it, you know, again, to like the way climbers like to just debate and, and shoot it, shoot themselves in the feet and like, okay, I get it, but let's just be climbers and worry about climbers and let the, right. you know, if, if a, you know, whatever, that's not our fight, so to speak, is I'm just like, come on, everybody yeah. get on board. I mean, I talk to people in Congress, I'm like, really? You think we're going to pass this act that says, go and develop some climbing guidance, you know, and make sure climbers can still go climbing. And then the next thing, you know, we're going to get snowmobilers coming in and be like, oh, no, okay, now you got to let snowmobilers into the wilderness too. I mean, well, that good is luck. not going to Do happen. your own bill, snowmobilers, yeah, I mean, and see how it goes. Yeah, like, that, let's not worry about it. That's yeah, not going to happen. I mean, we I have know. been climbing in these areas since like, you know, 1920 right. or whatever. The snowmobilers, you know, it's not the same thing. All right. So, so how does the bill, where is it going now? What's our next, what's the next steps? What are we looking out for? Um, yeah. How does this happen? You know, I remember the, the schoolhouse rock. It's, you know, <laughs> it's only a bill till it becomes a law. I think schoolhouse rock is like a very sanitized version of actually what happens in Washington, DC. Like right. uh, that little character, like cartoon character on the steps of the Capitol looks so easy and so fun. I, um, <laughs> I think there's some parodies actually of it on YouTube where it gets more real. There's some people who have done some parodies of that. Yeah. Like the bill smoking a cigar and like handing out dollar yeah, exactly. bills. Like behind yeah. it. Um, so Pay, uh, paying off, paying off porn stars, you know, Oh man, you went there. Oh, holy cow. No comment. No comment. So, uh, yeah, so we have a companion bill in the Senate. The Park Act is in the House of Representatives. We have a companion bill in the Senate called America's Outdoor Rec Act. That thing has been on the table for a couple few years, so it doesn't say exactly what we want it to say. doesn't include the National Park Service, for instance. And so now those two bills, the House and Senate bills, were moved separately through those independent chambers. And hopefully at the end of the day, we'll come together in one package that will get signed by the president once it's passed by Congress. Um, The next step is to fix the Senate bill, make it stronger, better. uh, And that will happen over the next couple months. And then both of those bills are moved through their independent uh, committees, the House Natural Resources Committee and the Senate Natural Resources Committee. Hopefully they will pass and then they will be taken up by the uh, uh, full House and full Senate, hopefully passed. And then they will make it to the president's desk. Um, Things that pass both the House and the Senate, but that don't say the exact same thing oftentimes have to get resolved in what's called a conference if there's inconsistencies in the two chambers. And that conference is often where a lot of these things um, happen, where uh, things can get changed or deals can get cut behind closed doors. And so that conference process can be really, really important. A lot of people don't know about that. So push the House bill, push the Senate bill, get it headed towards the president's desk and um, make sure that our, our, our champions in the House and Senate are keeping an eye open for what happens in that conference process. In that conference room, is that where you bring in the big guns like um, Tommy Caldwell and Sasha DeJulian and have them go butter up the our lawmakers? 
So, so first of all, Tommy and Sasha are incredible at getting meetings in Congress. It's pretty dang impressive. Like we'll make phone calls and send emails, crickets, crickets, crickets. And I'll be like, oh yeah, Tommy Caldwell would like to meet, you know, with this member of Congress. I get an email back in like five minutes. Like, oh yeah, everybody wants like, a photo op with Tommy and Sasha. So they are amazing um, at getting us meetings. And it's like so incredible to have, um, have them offering their time for that. It's really amazing. So um, big props to them and all the professional athletes for taking the time. But unfortunately, I cannot get Tommy into the actual conference room for when these decisions are made, because that would be pretty dang cool also. It's, um, it's a very tightly controlled process, usually run by the leaders of um, the Senate and the House of Representatives. What about Momoa? Could we get Momoa involved? I mean, he could just break the door down. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it's like he'll, yeah, he'll find like, a smoky room of of old men in robes <laughs> paddling just, each other. Yeah, just he's like, just show me where the door is. I'll break it down. <laughs> um. Well, it, I'm. I guess I'm left with the idea of being nervous about where all of this could head. It seems like it could yeah. be a really good thing or just the end of climbing as we know it. So. We'll have you on back on the show one way or the other, Chris, to uh, either account for what you've done to to our beloved climbing <laughs> community or or celebrate. It's all my fault. It's whatever happens, it's all my fault. So if it goes wildly <laughs> terrible, I'll definitely stand up and be like, "That's all my fault." And if we uh, if we win and it goes really well, I'll probably defer and give credit to Tommy and Sasha or something like that. We'll see. <laughs> what one thing I also want to mention too is you know and and we've. We've had our our differences with occasional um, access fund policy here on the on the the podcast. Um, most of it in fun, but um, but the thing is, is that people need to realize is that without the access fund, then this all would have gone down. I mean, the the Joshua Tree thing would go go down without anyone saying anything, and all of a sudden we would just wake up with these policies, you know. And so I I really believe in having this organization. And that we've come to take it for granted that it informs us about all these thousands of little cuts against climbing that go on around the country. Um, and so anyway, I just want a, a plea to support, you know, the Access Fund, at least with a basic membership. Um, you know, it's as important as any gear you have. And um, without it, I think in the last 30 years, climbing would look very differently and, and very bad compared to what it is now without the Access Fund. So um, good work, and and uh, you are all good sports and taking our barbs. Most of you are. Um, <laughs> and, well, uh, you know, but we do love you, and and any any big organization needs somebody keeping an eye on them too. So yeah. Um, but we we here at the run out, and and me is just a, a personal climber. Really appreciate what you guys do, Chris. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate. Um, you all taking a little bit of time to talk about these issues because they are really important. I appreciate the shout out. Um, and, you know, I love the climbing community. And one of the reasons I love our community so much is that we are passionate people um, about what we do and spending time outside. And um, I would expect that passion to be channeled into the Access Fund um, in more ways than we might expect. And so I have a lot of conversations with folks that are, you know, concerned about what we do, that wildly support what we do and everything between. And I think that makes us a better organization and a better community at the time. Cool, dude. We'll keep up the fight. Right on. Thanks a lot, guys. I really appreciate it. On today's final bit, we feature another edition of Run Out Buddy Spray. 
where a rope gun from Patreon.com sends in a spray down of a partner's awesome or ignominious ascent. Buddy Spray is a chance to share a story of glory that other climbing media would never waste their precious real estate reporting. But not the run out. We'll literally talk about anything. And these days, if we use your Buddy Spray, you get a Yeti Yonder water bottle in addition to lifelong admiration from friends and family alike. Today's Buddy Spray is from Ben Chipman, and it's a story of a bro getting his comeuppance. Thanks for being a rope gun, Ben, and we hope you stay hydrated this spring while out yonder with your new water bottle from Yeti. Hey, Chris. Hey, Andrew. This is uh, Ben from Utah coming at you guys with some buddy spray. Um, I heard this story of my friend Tasha just a couple weeks ago. Uh, Tasha and her husband are good friends of mine, and they took her sister and her sister's husband to the climbing gym uh, just, uh, a few weeks ago when they were in town from California, um, the story goes, uh, her sister's husband, I've met him before. He's a very competitive macho man, you know, likes to be big and strong and the best at everything he does. Um, you can kind of get the idea of who I'm talking about. You know, he walks into the gym, I guess, and like he owns the place, like he's going to take every route down. Like, this is easy. <laughs> um, and Tasha, my friend, she's not, she's not super psyched on climbing. Her husband's super interested in it. Um, but she's only been climbing for two or three months and she likes it, but she's not head over heels for it yet. Hopefully. Anyway, um, this guy, the arrogant guy, I should say, he gets on this 11A and, uh, makes it halfway up and then gets to some difficult moves and cannot make it through these moves. And he's just trying over and over and over and just flailing and exhausting himself. And he comes down just utterly defeated and frustrated. And so Tasha, who is quite a small woman gets on the rope and is like, maybe I'll try it. And so, you know, goes up, she has to take once or twice but she makes every move of the whole route, you know, including the one where the guy, you know, her brother-in-law got stuck and frustrated. <laughs> and I guess she just came down and he was kind of fuming and just like, this is stupid. <laughs> but anyway, props to Tasha. I loved the story. Thought I should share it with you guys. Um, yeah, that's what I got for you. You've just finished another episode of the Runout Podcast. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And I'm Chris Caloose, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. <laughs> Dude, come on. <laughs> because Chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die. That's true. We also have a Patreon that you can support our show at, and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com. No, 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 no. no, no. It's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Yes. <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life, <laughs> you should go and sign up at patreon slash runoutpodcast.com. <laughs> no, pot.com slash runoutpodcast. <laughs> <laughs>